Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth, Hegayim, because he had 900 chariots filled with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, the prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinanam, for Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishron River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver a Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went under his command. Deborah also went up with him. But Jael, Herber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man that you were looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera, with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against, king, against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word today, Lord, that um, you would speak to each one of us, um, that you would give us hearts that would be receptive to your word to us today. Lord, I pray for Jackson. Lord, I pray that you would um, just anoint him with your spirit, that uh, you would give him wisdom as he speaks and teaches, Lord, um, that you would lead him and guide him, that you would speak your truth through him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I'm a grandfather six times over, I'm telling you. It is just delightful. My name is Oh, My son, I have two boys that are both. Uh, one lives in Indiana who pastors down there. He's got four. And then I have a son in, uh, in uh, Philippines, in Manila. He's uh, teaching. He and his wife teach at an international school, and now this is their second. Uh, he is, uh, Rizzo's long. He's, that's probably the best way he's long. I don't know how you would say it other in inches. He's 21 inches long. And the reason that's significant, because his mother's only 5'2". His father is 6'6". 
two meters tall. He is one tall. You know, it's like David and Goliath hanging out together. It's a pleasure to be back with you guys. It's fun to see some people that have returned from vacation. We're glad to have you here. Let's look at Judges. If you had a movie made of your life, you know, if someone followed you around, you know, I love documentaries, and if someone did a documentary on your life, who would be the star of your story? Now, you might think, Jackson, ridiculous question. If the documentary is about me, it'd be about me, me, I'm the star. But as a follower of Christ, let me ask you seriously, who's the star of your story? Now, you think about it. How do you describe yourself? How do you describe what God's doing? If you hear a lot of I, 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 you're the star of your story. When you talk about what God is doing and how God has orchestrated the steps of your life, if you use the word I, it's your story. But as followers of Christ, really, we have someone else who's the star of our story. Let's talk about that. Maybe praying will jump in. Father God, uh, we invite you into this space. We know you're everywhere all the time, Father, but that invitation is really for our sake. When we invite you, we are saying to you, please, will you speak to us? You are faithful to do that, to whisper in our ear, to nudge us in our heart, to convict us and to encourage us. Fill us with your spirit and may your spirit be the one who guides us into all truth and makes much of Jesus. I would pray, Father, whatever I would say that is not of you, It would quickly be forgotten. But I know there is great confidence when I say your words after you. I can claim the promise in Isaiah 55. Your words never return to you without you accomplishing your agenda in the hearts of people. And Father, we trust that again right here in this moment. And may we not just be merely hearers of the word, but as James says, may we be doers of your word, putting it into practice, living differently in our relationship with you and with each other. And with our heads bowed, let me ask you to just maybe pray this simple prayer. Father God, show me who the real hero of my story is. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start my timer. We're going to be here until after lunch. Okay. Let me just remind you, we looked at uh, Judges last week. If you go to the next one for me, Sean, you'll remember this cycle. Go to the next one. I'm sorry. If you go right here, we talked about the cycle of judges as we think about the book of judges. And just quickly, let me just walk you through the cycle as we look at this particular story. Again, in in verse one of chapter four, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that now that Ehud was dead, they kind of do what they wanted to do. Now, what we see, and I just want to pause for a moment, what we see all through the book of Judges, but not just Judges, it's a continual problem when the people moved into the promised land, is that Baal was a constant competition for their affection with Yahweh. And the reason being is Baal was, one of the things was the fertility god. He was the god of lightning and thunder and rain. And when they came into this very plush land, they began to wonder, could their god provide this? Could Yahweh God provide this for them? And so Baal was a constant struggle. Let me show you what Baal looks like, just one of the places that Baal. Usually he has uh, two arms raised, and one of them has a lightning bolt in his hand, or he can look like a bull as well. There's a number of different ways in which he can look like. But the whole issue of their rebellion is because of Baal, and it shows up in the story, and I'll point it out here in just a moment. Go back for me, will you, Sean? You see again in this idea of the cycle, then the oppression. So the Lord sold them, verse 2, in the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar, and 
Sisera, the commander of his army. Let me show you a picture of Hazar. It's an incredible city during its time. It's being excavated. I have yet to go, but I'm hoping I'm going to be able to go this coming spring. But you see it up here on the map. And it's from what I've read, an incredible looking city, a powerful city during this time. So they were oppressed again. And then what do they do? They repent. Look with me at verse 3. Because he, Jabin, king of Canaan, had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now, let me show you a primitive chariot from basically this time, if you can see it. It was like the tank of its day. You know, it's like an F-18. You know, I mean, it was the cutting-edge weaponry of the day because horses were able to draw this into a battle. And so they had 900 of these fitted with iron, which also made them heavy. And they call out, and then there's repentance, of course. They, there was their repentance because of what uh, they were being oppressed by. And then God raises up a deliverer. And just look with me at verse 4 for a moment. Now Deborah, a prophet, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Now here's what's fishy, or here's what's confusing, or here's where we need clarity Is Deborah the hero of the story? I mean, she is an amazing woman. There are five women prophets in the Bible. Go go to the next slide for me, Sean. There's five women prophets. Let me show you up here. In Jewish literature, in the Talmud, they talk about seven prophets or prophetesses, women prophets in the Bible, and that you can see Miriam and Deborah, uh, Isaiah's wife, uh, Huldah, Anna, As we look at these prophets in the Bible, Deborah obviously being one of these. And as a prophet, she had her place under a palm, it says, where people could find her. And really, in the book of Judges, she's the only one that really does judging. She's really the only one that people seem to bring cases to and that she is able then to pursue God on their behalf and to bring wisdom to bear as a judge would. And so she sits in that position. But the big question we need to be asking through this is Deborah, the deliverer in this story. And then the last part of the cycle, if you can go back, Sean, trace that one down for me, is we see that the last part of it is there's peace. And if you look at chapter Judges 5 and verse 31, and the land had rest for 40 years. Now, the story of Deborah really covers two chapters, chapters 4 and chapters 5, and I'm going to try to combine them today as we just kind of briefly walk through the story. Chapter 4 would be the history of what takes place. Chapter 5 would be the theology behind it, the true story, what was happening supernaturally behind the historical situation. It's not unlike for us Americans. We have our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner which tells a story for us. It tells the story of when the British, and if you're British, I love you, but of the story of the British who came to America to over, uh, to to squail the, to quiet this rebellion that took place. And so there's the story of, of what took place in the harbor of Baltimore. And a guy named Scott wrote this down as he's watching this, and it's a story for us. So we sing it all the time. We sing it before every sporting event. It's a reminder. It's a story. And so Judges 5 is also a song to remind them what took place. Oral history was humongous, and it was passed on letter perfect. And one of the ways you pass it on is through song. How many of us know songs that we've never taken time to memorize? They come on the radio, we jump right in. 
It's not like we stop to try to memorize these things. Some reason words and song go together, help people remember and help people memorize. And that's what you have again in chapter five. All right. Now, here's how the story works. The people are being oppressed by this guy, Jabin, who's up in Hazor. He's got a kingdom in Sisera. He has 900 chariots, man. He's the big dog in town. He is able to oppress them. The children of Israel have fallen after Canaan. So God uses this king to punish them, to discipline, to get their attention. They finally repent. They finally come back. They come to Deborah and go, Deborah, help. Can something be done? And she says, as she speaks on behalf of God, yes. So she sends for a guy named Barak. And she brings Barak in and says, okay, God is going to deliver this king in these uh, 900 chariots and this army into your hands. Now, what's interesting is what we hear Barak say. Barak says, well, I'm not going if you don't go. Why? Because he knows the presence of God is with Deborah. He wants the presence of God. It's like the tabernacle that, or, that we read about or the Ark of the Covenant that we read about throughout the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant showing up. The presence of God shows up in the midst of battles, and the people felt confident. And so this guy wanted Deborah to come. I want the confidence that God's voice and God's power is going to be with me. And so Deborah looks at him and gives a very prophetic word. She says to him, all right. That may be true, I'm going to go, but God is going to give the glory to a woman. Now, he probably thinks it's going to go to Deborah, but God's going to orchestrate some other things to take place. Now, what's interesting, if you go to that next slide for me, you can see this map here. They go to Mount Tabor. Go to the next one. We'll see Mount Tabor, and then we can go again. There's Mount Tabor in the distance. This is the Jezreel Valley. This is the Valley of Armageddon that we know about from the book of Revelation. There's Mount Tabor right there. They gather at Mount Tabor, the Israelites do. 10,000 men from two tribes are from this area. This is their place where they're living. And he gathers them and says, let's meet at Mount Tabor. Well, everybody knew where that was. It's strategic for a couple of reasons. One, you get the high ground in the battle, especially with chariots. It'd be very hard for the chariots to make it up the mountain. But also, you can see a distance out. He can see and anticipate where the battle's going to take place. Strategically, it's the right move, but it's not God's move. It's not what God decides to do. God's got something very different in mind. Instead, he takes them, go to the next slide for me, Sean, takes them down to the Kishon River Valley, down where this river would overflow. In fact, this valley for years was... uh, damp and full of water and it had to be drained when the Israel when Israel bought the land here and turned it into a very productive area but this river overflows now how do I know that that's going to be part of the story because chapter 5 tells us that chapter 5 if you put up that I think the next one for me Sean the one that says Judges 5 yeah right here look what chapter 5 says here so we can get a little bit of the story When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the rains poured down water. Verse 21, the river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. All right, now think what's going on. He moves them into the valley. He moves them into where the river is. The river now, it's raining cats and dogs. The river overflows. You got 900 chariots made of iron. What happens? They get stuck. And the Israelites are now able to rout 
this general and the 900 chariots. I mean, frankly, there is no opportunity. They have no chance. There is absolutely no chance against 900 chariots. God goes, I'm not done yet. Now, what's interesting, too, is you usually fought in, in the summertime when it was dry. The land was dry. It's easier to move. You don't get rain. And yet God causes it to rain. Now, remember I told you about Baal. Remember, Baal was the god of fertility, god of rain, god of thunder. What is God saying? God's saying, I'm the one that produces the rain. In the most unlikely time, I'm the one. Not Baal. Don't turn to Baal. Me. He reminds the Israelites who's in charge. I'm the biggest and baddest God on the block. I'm the one that's in charge. The rest of the story of Sisera then flees. He's, his uh, cherry gets stuck in the mud. And so he flees, and he flees to this little village that has friends of, of his in Hazar. It's a little village that they have a connection, a, a peace treaty, so to speak, And he runs kilometers. I mean, he runs a chunk, if you know this valley. I know Mark's been there many times. Some of you have been there. It's a wide valley, and you run him for a distance to get to where he's going to go. He gets there. He is beat. Well, here's a woman. She says, come on. I got you. Come on in. He goes, man, I am so thirsty. And so she pours him some milk. And he lays down. And she puts a covering over him to hide him. So he says, you know, will you hide me? Will you protect me? Puts a covering over him. Then why is he asleep? Let's go to the next line. Let's see if we can find it. What she does is she takes a tent peg. Now he is out, man. That deep sleep from being emotionally and physically exhausted, from living with the concern and the fear of your being chased, he is out. So she sneaks up on him, gets down on one knee as he sleeps, Seems like on his side, she takes a, pen, a tent peg and hammers that sucker right into his temple. Drives it into the ground. Now, we're not really given a motive for why she does what she does, though she is part of a tribe that is the brother-in-law of Moses, and there's probably some things there that I'm not completely familiar with. Remember, Deborah says, the victory will go to a woman. And the victory goes to a woman. It's a great story, isn't it? Fascinating story. But the story begs the question, who's the true deliverer in this story? Who's the hero of the story? Is it Deborah? Is it Debrock? Is it J.L.? I mean, who is really the one that is going to be identified as the hero of the story? Or I think you already see where I'm going. God's the deliverer of this story. Go to the next slide for me, Sean. When you go through and read this in the Hebrew, which I'm sure most of you do for your devotions, you know, when you go through and you identify the word for God, for the Lord, Yahweh, or God, Elohim, what you see is identified 26 different times in these two chapters. In Hebrew, one of the ways they stress a point, you know, when we underline or bold or italics it or whatever in in, uh, something that's written, the way you would do it in Hebrew is that you would repeat it a number of times to where you go, okay, I got it. God is mentioned in one way, shape, or form 26 times in these two chapters. 26 times. The real battle that is being played out here is Yahweh, Elohim, God, Greater than, more powerful than Baal to tell his people 
What are you thinking by worshiping another God who cannot hear you? In fact, I love how the Bible describes it. They have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, a mouth but cannot speak. With a piece of wood, they cut it in half, and one, they start their dinner. They fire for their dinner, and the other, they carve a face. The true and living God that is engages and makes himself known versus worshiping a worthless God. Who's the hero of this story? I mean, this is God's story from start to end. Look down with me. You're not going to have all these verses, maybe, but let me point to a couple of them. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Verse 6. Deborah sent for Barak from Naphtali and said to him, The Lord of Israel commands you, and now God speaks, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them to the Mount Tabor. I will, I will lead them, Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all the chariots in the army by the sword. Whose story is this? Whose story is this? God is reminding the Israelites, I am the true and only God there is. There is no other God. I'm the God of overwhelming odds. Folks, listen to that. I'm the God of of overwhelming odds. 10,000 men against 900 chariots? God says, I'm bigger than this. What this story shows us, once again, about the God of the Bible, if I can just talk about God for a moment, is that God is both transcendent and imminent. Sean, if you'd go to the next one. Transcendence of God. The transcendence of God is closely related to a sovereignty. It means that God is above. He's over. He distinct from. He transcends it all in Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. All powerful, overall. But he's also, what's so unique about our God is the imminence of our God. God is near. God is wholly present and active in his creative order. Emmanuel, from Christmas, we sing Emmanuel. God is with us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The imminence of God connected, engaged relationally with us. It is God's engagement with his people, caring enough to intervene, powerful enough to intervene, caring and being engaged relationally enough to be with them in this. There are God's people worship today in the world that they believe are transcendent but not imminent. And there are gods that they worship that they believe are imminent, but not transcendent. A God that is all powerful, but has no interest in me or a God who's up close to me, but has no power to engage. And quite frankly, folks, as a follower of Christ, we struggle with these same things. 
We struggle with the idea that God is transcendent, that God is powerful, God is able, but we struggle with the fact that he could be personal, that he would care about us. God is able, but I'm not sure God is willing. That even as followers of Christ, we can watch God engage in other people's lives and we see his transcendence and his power, but we really wonder and doubt, would he do that for me? Would he engage with me? Some of us have no problem seeing God as being imminent, being personal. He's our pal. He's our mate. He's the man upstairs, and frankly, we treat him in a disrespectful way. We call him our friend, and there's really not the respect that we pay to him as God. He is both. He is powerful, and he's personal. And it is our privilege to be able to call on him. Why is this important to believe that God is both powerful and personal? Because there are times you and I face the 900 chariots. There are times when we engage in the 900 chariots of life, the things that seem overwhelming and powerful to us. And when we remember that God is more powerful, that he is concerned and interested, he is up close and personal, and yet he is powerful at the same time. He is able and he's willing. We can rest. We are able to rest knowing that God is in charge. I mean, think about the largest 900 chariot any of us deal with. It is first and foremost our rebellion against God. It is an overwhelming thing that we cannot correct on ourselves. We cannot be good enough. We cannot do enough good things. We cannot build up our spiritual resume enough for God to notice us. We've offended him in our thoughts and in our actions, and there is a broken, strained relationship that we live in. We have a 900 chariot problem. The transcendent God sits as one who is holy, and he holds us accountable. He judges us in, a, in our rebellion. He holds us accountable. But the eminence of God gets up off the throne, and he steps into time, and he becomes a man named Jesus who lives a life that you and I have not been able to live, to die a death that you and I should die. The personableness of God engaging with us, looking us in the eye and saying, you can't do this, but I do this for you. If God chooses to do that for us, if God deals with the greatest 900 chariot problem, then what other issues could we possibly have that God cannot deal with and overpower? It is why we as Christians should be able to take big risk in our life, to be able to live with a risky obedience because we have a God who is powerful and he's personal. We know, too, that not only has he dealt with our sin issue, our rebellion, but he has dealt with our death issue as well. That after three days, God was raised from the grave. And that when we believe in him, we have the same hope that that is not the end of our story. Death is not the end of our story. Being a pastor, I have done a lot of funerals. You know what I found? You know what I found? Christians die well. We die well. 
And funerals are not a place of just mourning, but they're also a place of celebration because the 900 chariot problem has been dealt with in the resurrection of Jesus. And I have done a lot of funerals for non-believers, and I'm telling you, there is no greater pain than to be with people who have no hope. If this is true for us, then why do we get overwhelmed with our financial issues, our health, our marriage, receiving a visa or not, starting a business or starting a not-for-profit or changing jobs? Why, is it we wor- why do I worry if I have a God who is transcendent and imminent? Why do I battle? Because I forget. God is willing, but he's not able. Or he's able, or he's not willing. This doesn't mean that we don't fight. If you notice in this story, Barak had to show up. 10,000 men had to show up. We show up. We engage. We go. We do what we need to do. And we believe that in our going, God is going to do something. Because Our faith is built on a strong foundation of a God who is powerful. Who's the hero of your story? When you look back on what God has done in your life, the question is, who is the hero of your story? Do you tell your story with I? I, 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 I. Or do we tell our story with, look what my God has done. Let me go back to the Star Spangled Banner for a moment and just give you the context for this. Let me show you a picture. The Brits are in, the, in, in Baltimore Harbor. They're four miles out because the uh, guns, or, or two miles out because the guns from the fort could only shoot so far and they couldn't reach the ships. So the ships are two miles out, uh, a kilometer and a half out, and they're just more than that, almost three kilometers out, and they're tossing these cannonballs into the fort. Well, the major, who was the major at that time, George Armstead, he said, he knew this was coming. He goes, I want a flag, and I want a flag big enough that the British can't miss it, and they will know that we're not going anywhere. And you can see on this slide how big this is. Here's the flag, and here's a man standing next to it. I mean, it was humongous. Now, to fly something that big, it had to have a very firm foundation, and that's what you see here. They found the foundation of dug it up. Firm, deep foundation, and then the flag was able to wave. We go into battle, and we remind ourselves that God is our God. He is our firm and solid foundation. He and he alone is able to do. And then we live our life knowing that our God is transcendent and our God is imminent. He is able, and he is willing. And in the midst of the war, our flag waves. Let me pray. Father God, as we pause for a moment, I pray your spirit would prompt us to ask us the question, who is the hero of our story? May we be reminded that you are the hero of every follower of Christ's story, that it begins in your pursuit of us, 
in your conviction of us and our repentance to you and you're filling us with your spirit and the presence of your spirit in our life, you are the center of our story. May we be willing to humble ourselves. May we be willing to see God give us eyes to see that you are the hero of our story. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.